teaching God's Word about money is hard anywhere, anytime. Um, but this, this is not the most difficult, I will tell you. Uh, I once preached this passage in Rwanda, in Kigali. And let me give you some context for why that was a, such a challenge. A typical income, typical income in Rwanda is $700 a year. A year, that is that 55%, the majority of Rwandans, live on $2 a day. That's $60 a month. That's $720 a year, 55%. Uh, owned housing is held in the hands of very few. And so most of the people in the church where I was preaching this 2 Corinthians 9, most of those uh, were not in that 55%. Most of them were in the upper 45%. Some of them uh, were making in a month well over what the majority make in a year. So some of them were doing well. Some earning $12,000 a year. Maybe even $20,000 a year. And yet, even those people might struggle to get two meals a day, two meals a day, because of the rent in the city, because that's where we were, in the city. And so there I was. Uh, at the time, I was working as a college professor, and that meant I was among the wealthiest people in that room. And I was asked to preach. I was asked. They knew along, uh, far ahead of time, we want you to preach on 2 Corinthians 9, uh, and the task was to help them avoid uh, the false teaching that was begin it's uh, rampant uh, across the global south, the prosperity gospel that you give in order to get. That by giving, we place God in an oblig obligatory relationship towards us to, to return. If you give, he'll reward you with more. Wealth is a sign of God's favor. The wealthier you are, the more God must like you. And so their pastors wanted me to urge these impoverished people to give more faithfully, but to deny the carrot of financial reward. In other words, to say, you may well continue in poverty and suffering and struggling, but you ought to give from a wealthy person who has no concept of what the daily struggle that they experience, what this would mean for them if they put into effect. I wish I knew what I had said. I, I, I have lost the manuscript. <laughs> I lost it. I don't think I ever returned with it. Um, it went well. I have no idea what I said. One of the glories, though, of God's Word is that it is eternally true. And that means that it's true always and everywhere, regardless of circumstances, regardless of society. It's applicable at all times and all places. That is so relieving. I didn't need to be afraid to give them God's word, regardless of who I was and who, what they were experiencing. God's word would apply. In fact, 
Rwandans have more in common with the ancient people of God than we do in terms of the basic lifestyle. The, those 55% who earn $2 a day are farmers. They live agricultural lives like almost all of the people in the Old and New Testaments. So at the time, at that moment, if we, we think back to when God was giving his word, when God gave the guidelines about giving to the Israelites, they didn't even have land to farm. They were wandering in the wilderness. When he gave these guidelines, they were in the desert. He instructed them that when they came in and they settled in Canaan, when they had towns, when they had farmlands, they were to give the first tenth of every harvest. When lambing season came, kidding season of the goats, they were to give a tenth of the increase. And they were to give it to teachers who were established with them, who lived with them, assigned to each and every town. In fact, so the principle was, from the family of Levi, God assigned pastors to every village of ten or more families. And their, their tithing then would support the religious life of that community, would support the teachers that lived among them, with them. For agricultural people, that tenth felt like a lot. You have ten newborn lambs. There's one. One goes. A tenth of the grain. That's seed that would not be planted. Food in the hand. Food in the hand would become a sign. Return to God. A sign of trust. A sign that everything belongs to Him. And so... God built into this system. He, this system that he established was a practice of faith. A tangible practice of faith. The tithe, it wasn't just to support the Levites. It did that. It supported their teaching. It supported their religious life. But its function was to teach them faith. Dependence on God. Giving of the crops, giving of the herds. It was a huge expression of trust, right? That God would provide. You lose the one lamb, He will provide. Giving was worship. Giving was faith. They didn't always do very well with this. God's people went through times of dryness, through struggle. They forgot about understanding God. They forgot who He was. They forgot. They lacked faith. And so, through prophets like Malachi, He had to remind them and He urged them, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Thereby, put me to the test. See, says the Lord of hosts, see if I will not Open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Trust me, he's saying. Don't put your trust in your possessions. Trust me, and I'll show you I'm trustworthy. 
put me to the test. So the point then of tithes and offerings was to conform the hearts of God's people. To conform them to Him. So that He would be the most valued. That's where their trust would be. He would be understood as the source of life and hope. Your life and your hope are not in your skill with your flock. That's a valuable thing. But that's not the source of your life. That's not your hope. Obeying His commands, these these commands to give, it produced real, living faith in people. But the opposite was also true. Disobedience eroded faith. Those moments when God has to send His prophets and say, where's my honor? Where's my respect? Try, bring, try giving to your governor what you have given to me. Try treating your, your bosses like you treat me. How will that go? Disobedience in this area of trust eroded their faith. It eroded their understanding of God's love for them. And it gave disdain for him. So... For us, we are so distanced from this agricultural world. Most of us. Pretty much most of us. So it's easy also to keep that rhythm that they had at a distance too. We're we're socially distanced, so we're culturally distanced, so it cannot apply to us. Uh, That majority of the Rwandans I mentioned, they're much closer to that agricultural way of life. Most of those, 55%, are farmers. We also, uh, we shelter ourselves with the, the truth, the reality that the civil law for Israel never applied to non-Jews. We're Gentiles. I mean, there may be a, a handful of you here that have Jewish descent. Or you are descended from Jews, but we're, we're pretty much Gentiles. The civil law of Israel never applied to us. And, and so we, we, we've received this, the glorious freedom of God's law written on our hearts. It is a glorious freedom. The Holy Spirit has put His law in our hearts. The Spirit speaks God's ways to us, speaks His law, and rather than a law code that we have that we enforce. It's not the function of pastors, church leaders, to enforce written codes. So the New Testament echoes this joyful freedom. It it is Christian freedom. How the grace of God gives us, uh, gives His people grace to give grace to others. Last week, we we just saw briefly, we glanced how this changes values. It's always been notable that When people come into the kingdom of God, the values change. For Greeks, they went from giving their bodies to everybody and their money to nobody to giving their bodies to nobody and their money to everybody. Major values change. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom. Freedom from 
bondage to sin. Freedom from fear. Freedom from stuff. Freedom from idolatry. Freedom from all that entrapped us and enslaved us. Freedom to live in the grace of God. Freedom to be free towards others. Freedom to have power, grace, generosity. Freedom to forgive. So how does this freedom show up in our values? American Christians. Not bound by the law. Set free to live freely. How are we doing? Nationally, this gets boring, statistics. Nationally, less than one in four Christians give to a church, a local church at all. All across America. Of American Christians, families making a minimum of $75,000 a year. That's so doing pretty well. Just 1% tithe. Just 1% give at least 10%. Those making more than $75,000 a year, 1% tithe. And the huge majority of American Christians, 80%, give 2% of their income. It's American Christianity. That's depressing. The interesting statistic to me, the good one, and this is the really valuable one. This is the one that has purchase of households that tithe, meaning they use 10% of their income as a guide for giving to their local church. That, that's where we're talking about here, the local church. The huge majority, over 75% of those that tithe, over 75% give away an additional 5 to 10% of their income. That's, so that means those who tithe actually tend to give more, around 15 to 20%. That's remarkable. With a small exception, based on that other statistic, these are families, households making less than 75000 a year. That's Interesting. So those, those people, they prove a principle that God gave, they, they prove that this principle that God gave to Israel is alive. It's a living principle. It's not just back there 2,000 years ago. So even though the legal requirement's gone, we are, you are not bound to this. It's not binding, yet it works. It works. The tithe was a gift from God to free people to trust him. And apparently it works. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine told me he was at a conference and he overheard two guys arguing. Happened to be in the urinals. Uh, they, they were arguing over whether a tithe was a helpful guide for Christian giving. Is it, is it helpful? One guy was 
arguing. We, you should not even have it in your purview. You shouldn't even be thinking about it. Just give according to your freedom. The other guy commented, I'll go with your freedom when your freedom surpasses my tithing. That's a fair point. Given what we're... According to God's word and, and apparently from what actually happens, tithing helps people to live in freedom, financial freedom. Now, so that's all framework. That framework, those assumptions, they're underneath the text today. 2 Corinthians 9. They're behind it. Though they're often ignored when we come to it. In verse 1, Paul says, he knows that they're ready for this offering for the saints in Jerusalem. There's a group going to be coming, including Paul, they're going to get this collection and deliver it to Jerusalem. Now, reading this passage, we tend to ignore that this offering is not to support the pastors in Corinth. It's obvious, but we should let that register. This collection is, is not for the local church. It's not to support poor members of the Corinthian congregations. It's a big city in Corinth. A lot of the, the congregants are poor. But this offering is not for that local setting. The first five verses show this is a special collection. Many churches uh, across Macedonia, across uh, central Greece, across Achaia, probably some in Asia Minor, are taking part in this collection. And there had been a plan. Store it up. Be ready to give it when the time came. It's important to notice this context. Because what follows in verses 6 through 15 has reference to that. To special collections. Um, if we're going to be contextual, that's, where it, that's what he's talking about. Uh, it, it does not have reference, it's not part of maintaining the life of the local church family. So, once feeding and sheltering the local household of faith is done, then these Corinthians are to look at, the, look at what's in their hands for the offering, for the special collection. These verses, though, they're full of the same principle we saw last week. This, this abiding principle God has given. Just to remind you, it's in chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace, the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might be enriched. This is God's heart. The generous heart of God enriches people at cost to himself. That's what God's like. We see it displayed in Jesus Christ. So, in verses 6 through 15 now, he lays down a very important rule of avoiding manipulation or compulsion. And as I told you last week, this, th that rule uh, overawes me. It, it keeps me from uh, talking about this as much as I should. He says, each person must do as he has made up in his own mind. A free will offering, a special collection 
has to be just that. Done in the freedom of the will. Not by any kind of manipulation. And yet, he's very clear. There's a reward for generous giving. Bountiful. There's lots of agricultural metaphors in here. You see that? Sowing, harvesting, sowing, reaping. Bountiful sowing will bring bountiful reaping. However, it is not, contrary to the prosperity gospel preachers, it's not what they promise. Verse, the, the, the bountiful reaping. Verses 10 through 11. God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He's going to provide for you and increase the harvest of righteousness. Not increase the harvest of your lambs, not increase the harvest of your grain. You'll increase the harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As your lives are transformed, thanksgiving to God will abound. God promises to provide. It's, he's, it's explicitly said there. But the real reward for, for generous giving, it's a harvest of righteousness. It's a change inside. It means a filling up in us of the goodness of God. That's what righteousness means. The ways that God is. A harvest of that inside us. Your enrichment will be more of God's generous heart. So you'll be more of a gracious person. You'll be a more charitable person. You'll bear more easily with the stupidity of others, their meanness. That's what God's like. You'll have... So weird, isn't it? Giving financially will change your attitude towards other people. Harvest of righteousness. In short, you will act more like Jesus. And that will produce praise. Praise to God. Not honor for you. Praise to God. All over the place. It will abound. God does not negotiate with terrorists. But he does provide for his children. So what I'm saying is, if we give so that we try to put God in obligation to him, we try to put God in obligation to us, we are stupid terrorists. Uh, we do not understand how great of rebels we are. But if we give because he's given everything to us, then we're giving according to the gospel. And that honors him. That brings him praise. Brothers and sisters, uh, I have let you down through the years because I haven't taught specifically, I haven't taught about the distinction between how we maintain our worshiping community, uh, how we maintain our spiritual life together, and how we give to help the vulnerable. It wasn't necessary for so long. 
because nobody here received a, a salary. We could just give and give, and we didn't even have to worry about maintaining the worshiping life of our community. Bivocation does that. It's wonderful. Uh, I was jealous for my bivocational ministry. I, I loved it. I know what Paul's talking about when he said, I put no one under obligation. I lived with you for years, and I put no one under obligation. And he took a kind of, it was a pride in that. I know how that feels. Our situation has changed through the years now, and I, I haven't adjusted the, our teaching about that. Um, and so I hope this distinction is becoming clearer today. I hope, as we're looking at God's provisions for how he maintains his people, it's becoming clearer. Pastors in New Covenant churches, we're a New Covenant church, are in the place of Levites in the Old Covenant. So like, like that design, when ten families live together in a village, they support a Levite family. Like that. Ten tithing households can support a pastor at the average income of those households. That was the plan. He's, he's a wise God. Fifteen households can maintain a place of worship as well. So here, I, I came to my attention this week that... Not everyone goes to the annual meeting. Not everyone knows how our funds work. Here, we have two full-time pastors. Timothy and I are, are full-time pastors. Our diocese has supported the bulk of Logan's uh, position as he is becoming the, the, the Levite, the pastor, the worker for that Meridian congregation. Uh, Lance and James are bivocational. So the bulk of their income comes from their work in the world uh, as their, their primary callings right now are in other settings. Um, I don't know if you knew that. That's, you should know that. That's important. That's a family conversation. What I, I hope you'll see there is we are trying to maintain ratios that God gave in his word. The, ratio, the ratios that he established in the old covenant, they're still helpful for us because they keep shepherds close to people. I, I dare say you've all been in exceedingly large churches and there's an enormous distance between the shepherds and the people because the ratios are not maintained. There need to be adequate shepherds to know, to love, and to care for God's people, for all the households. And it is my view and it is my conviction that these principles, uh, they teach us that churches should not be too big for this kind of pastoral care to happen. That's why we birth congregations. If those ratios get too big. Do you notice... That this whole way of thinking about what a pastor is, uh, how care is given, uh, how many pastors are needed, it depends on the principle of tithing. It's embedded in there. Without tithing, 
our maintenance breaks down, the way that our community life, our spiritual life, our worshiping community, it breaks down. So now let's come full circle. The very idea of tithing, which God gave to Israel, was to communicate the love and care of God. It was a gift to his people to help them understand his love and his grace, his provision and his character. For us, it communicates the gospel. We give because he's given to us. That's the motivating factor. We love because he first loved us. We're charitable because he is charitable to us. And his spirit guides our hearts to give. We don't do it under compulsion or by rule. And we don't do it so that we can get something. But who he is and what he's like, we want to be made evident in us, in how we live together. And so a church on mission will be generous. And a generous church will show forth the heart of God. I've included for you in the bulletin today uh, a worksheet that I asked you to prepare for. Uh, if you forgot or you purposely avoided it, now you have another copy to work with. It's in this week's bulletin. Uh, and I give this to you. We're not going to like work through it right now. I give this to you simply to help you know your own practices so that you, you, you can understand what you're doing. I do not know your practices. Seven or eight years ago, uh, I signed the end of year, the, the financial letter, you know, that says your contributions. It hurt my heart so bad, I will never do that again. Uh, that is a bad move. I, I don't know. So I don't know what you give. But you should know what you give. It's for you. You should know. So that you can move towards generosity. What generosity will look like for you is between you and the Holy Spirit. He is actively guiding. And if you will ask him, to guide you to more of his heart, to show you what that, what that will look like for you, he will. As we've seen, tithing and thinking about giving, it's a God, the tithe is a God-given guide to help conform our hearts. A full tithe may be impossible for you. It, it just may be impossible. You can't give what you don't have. That principle we, we saw established last week. You can't give what you don't have. But this worksheet is to help you understand what you are doing. And you might consider going from nothing to something. Or from 1% to 1.5% or 2% or perhaps from 3 to 5 that will have an effect on you. If God's word is true, it will have an effect on you. It will affect your values. It will affect your faith. 
But do it out of trust. Do it out of do it out of believing God's promise. Do it out of believing that his word is true. Not under compulsion, sense of obligation, or manipulation. We are, in fact, very generous as a church at giving to vulnerable people. The vulnerable church globally, situations of crisis, um, uh, even suffering people outside of our congregation here locally. Um, but if our budget is any indication, my bad teaching has affected you and we don't tithe. Um, it seems like generally, but we think about those uh, special collections as part of our tithe. I'm encouraging you to reconsider how that works. Not because I like it. I, I'll be honest, I would prefer to include all of my, my uh, giving away as part of my tithe. I would prefer that. Uh, I could keep more. Um, so I have been challenged in this, and I hope you are. I hope you're challenged, because it's God. It's, it's his word. Let's come to the Lord with that. Father, uh, you see everything. You, you know uh, where we place our faith. You know our fears. So I, I ask on our behalf, would you enable us to grow in faith um, in this area of our finances? These signs, these symbols of where we place our trust, uh, would, you, would you use them? Grow our faith. And Lord, we ask that the mission that you've given to this congregation... As we, uh, we try to follow after you and we try to live into that mission, we ask that uh, you would enable us. You'd, you would make possible the multiplication of your people, the multiplication of outposts of com your community here in Idaho. In Jesus' name.